Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Kayla Maiori, who reads the opening of a short story that she often returns to. Here's more from Kayla. My name is Kayla Maiori. I'm a writer, and my debut novel, Mother in the Dark, is coming out next summer from Riverhead Books. There's a story I always return to when I find myself distracted or just not in the frame of mind to write, and that's Snow by Anne Beattie. It's a beautiful, nostalgic piece about an unnamed narrator reflecting on her failed relationship, and this is how it begins. I remember the cold night you brought in a pile of logs and a chipmunk jumped off as you lowered your arms. What do you think you're doing in here, you said as it ran through the living room. It went through the library and stopped at the front door as though it had knew the house well. This would be difficult for anyone to believe except perhaps as the subject of a poem. Our first week in the house was spent scraping, finding some of the house's secrets, like wallpaper under wallpaper. In the kitchen, a pattern of white gold trellises supported purple grapes as big and round as ping-pong balls. When we painted the walls yellow, I thought of the bits of grape that remained underneath and imagined the vine popping through the way some plants can tenaciously push through anything. The day of the big snow, when you had to shovel the walk and couldn't find your cap, and asked me how to wind a towel so that it would stay on your head you and the white towel turban, like a crazy king of snow. People liked the idea of our being together, leaving the city for the country. So many people visited, and the fireplace made all of them want to tell amazing stories. The child who happened to be standing on the right corner when the door of the ice cream truck came open and hundreds of popsicles crashed out. The man standing on the beach, sand sparkling in the sun, one bit glinting more than the rest, stooping to find a diamond ring. Did they talk about amazing things because they thought we'd turn into one of them? Now I think they probably guessed it wouldn't work. It was as hopeless as giving a child a matched cup and saucer. Remember the night out on the lawn, knee-deep in snow, chins pointed at the sky as the wind whirled down all that whiteness? It seemed that the world had been turned upside down, and we were looking into an enormous field of Queen Anne's lace. Later, headlights off, our car was the first to ride through the newly fallen snow. The world outside the car looked solarized. Thank you so much again to Kayla for sharing. Again, the short story she read from was Snow by Anne Beattie. Now here's my conversation with Meredith Westgate. What do we remember about our stories? This question drives the premise of Meredith Westgate's debut novel, The Shimmering State. In this compelling story, Meredith explores the convergence of memory, art, and grief through the lens of two artists, Lucian, a grieving photographer who moves to Los Angeles to care for his grandmother, and Sophie, a dancer with the Los Angeles Ballet Company who lands a lead role in an upcoming production. 
on the periphery of their stories is an experimental drug called memoroxin that quote, targets and delivers patients' own memories and is intended for medical treatment. But after Lucian and Sophie meet as patients at the center, a memoroxin rehabilitation clinic founded by the mysterious Dr. Sloan, readers are taken on a journey between past and present to understand Lucian and Sophie's connection to one another and the world around them. The consumption and curation of memory feels so much of how we live, work, and create in our digital age. Yet as the shimmering state comes out during a time of recalibration, both online and off, Meredith's work reminds us of the delicate threshold between the memories that make us who we are and the stories we tell ourselves. As she writes in The Shimmering State, what memories circulate behind his eyes? Lucian thinks how, depending on the present, memory can be an escape or torture. And in this interview, Meredith shared more about the origins of the shimmering state, her thoughts on the curation and commodification of memory, and why writing fiction slows her down and opens up a world of possibility. Meredith's words glisten on the page, but I won't give too much more away. So with that said, enjoy my conversation with Meredith Westgate, author of The Shimmering State. I'm Meredith. Outside of being a writer, I've also been a teacher. I've taught undergraduate writing to artists and designers. I've also worked in restaurants. I worked in um, marketing and communication right after college before I went back to get an MFA in creative writing. And lately I've been adapting this book, The Shimmering State, to television. And I think one thing that working in sort of marketing and communication after college showed me was just how much I wanted to contribute something meaningful that I care about that is based a lot on connection. And that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about teaching and about working in a restaurant was just the sort of opportunities for connection and to sort of create space for myself for reflection. And one of the things I've loved most about teaching was teaching artists and designers because for my creative practice in writing, art and design are such a key part to that. And in The Shimmering State, especially, it became this vehicle to explore the creative process in some ways. Lucian, one of the main characters, is a photographer. And Sophie is a ballet dancer. Even Dr. Sloan, who is more on the sort of clinical side, uh, I think it operates sort of from a deep connection to her own sort of creativity. And I'm so interested in that process. And in my writing, it's easier to explore my own creativity sometimes through exploring these other mediums. And, and it's also a way to engage with these things that I care so deeply about, even just for pleasure, like art and performance and music. So I I sort of engage with those often to fuel my own process, but it's also just something that I, I love and really value. And one of the things that I'm most excited to engage with again now that things are opening up because it's such an important part to what I value in life. All of that resonates with me too. And I think it's interesting to hear you talk about teaching. I'm sure a lot of what you've taught your students informed how you approached your process with the book, but I'm curious if there was anything from that particular period in your life that unexpectedly revealed itself while you were writing. Yeah, I mean, for the classes that I was teaching, I was really surprised by how much sort of free reign I had in what we were covering. Very early in terms of college career writing class. And so it was really to engage sort of the creative processes that these students use for their art or photography or fashion design. I was teaching at Parsons. It was from all the schools under the new school as well. And so I ended up, it was while I was working on this book that I was 
first teaching there, and I ended up incorporating a lot of works that engage with how we write about memory and how we experience memory and works that play with perspective. I was also teaching around the time of Trump getting elected. So it was also this like unexpected sort of cathartic way to explore all these things that I was feeling and that I could sense my students were feeling through writing and through pieces that really had resonated with me even before the election and and sort of going back to you know perspectives that are often lost in in traditional narratives and even just re-examining our own perspectives and our own memories and this idea of identity built on an ever-evolving memory was obviously something I was really interested in exploring in this book. And so it was really energizing to me to have these conversations with younger students and students that also think in really interesting and different ways because so many of them were very visual. It was really exciting to me to like unlock some of that creativity that they had been channeling towards very different mediums and to unlock that and show them that they actually can translate that into language as well. And sometimes it leads to the most unexpected, really interesting writing because it's not coming from this background of tradition in some ways. So it was really fun. It felt like playing with very creative people and just sort of like exposing them to things that they might not have otherwise encountered. So I felt really lucky to kind of be in that position and to, to sort of tailor it also to what I was working on at the time. It's really one of the best opportunities for a writer who's teaching because it lets you stay engaged in the topics that you're interested in, but also gives you that space outside of it and the human interaction that I think is often lacking for writers. Yeah, I can imagine just having that perspective and like you said, time to step out of your world because I'm sure it's all consuming once you're in it. And I think even going back a little bit further, do you have an early memory as a writer or something that stands out to you from when you realized this was the medium that resonated the most with you? It's funny because I've always been a voracious reader and that was what I studied in undergrad. And I've always just loved looking deeply at a text and sort of highlighting the things that the author did and how they were successful and the sort of comparative literature aspect of examining within a tradition. And it's funny because it, for so long, it never crossed my mind that I could be a writer who created those things. And now when I look back at like my childhood, I was always making up stories, whether I was with friends or like on my own, just in my room. I think there wasn't a moment that I wasn't like enacting some story and writing plays for my little cousins at Thanksgiving. And I was sort of doing it all along, but never putting pen to page. And um, once I started, I think in some ways it was like not doing it after college undergraduate, like not doing it and being out in the world and having so many experiences that I like had this desire to translate into something that I didn't feel like I could like articulate in my daily life, I think was sort of the final fuel to try writing my own fiction. And then I think just the way that it felt so liberating to create this imagined world where I could explore all the things that either sort of thrill me in real life or especially challenge me and the things that I find sort of inexplicable. And that's probably the kernel for this book actually came shortly after I had started applying for MFA programs. 
and it was really like watching the way people were starting to use Instagram. And this was 2012. So it was very recent. And so many of my friends weren't even on it yet. But I had been working at a restaurant where it was very creative people. And it was sort of that to me was how Instagram felt at first was like this very creative space that was different than something like Facebook. And now, of course, there's been just a shift over from Facebook to Instagram. I was just starting to feel that sort of draw to a life spent watching other people's moments, other people's memories. And I was actually doing a writing program in Paris for the summer it was through Colombia. And I was just so caught up with this feeling of like watching people outside of their own memory for the sake of having that memory afterwards, if that makes any sense, like this commodification of memory. And of course, we sort of take that as the reality that we're all in now because it's become so, you know, it's spread so much that it's sort of the sacrifice that we all have accepted that we'll sort of sacrifice our experience of a moment to have the photograph or the video of it after. And that was really the inspiration behind this the short story that led to this book was exploring what we lose and also sort of discrepancy between the reality and the actual memory when we're distilling it into something very superficial in some ways, like all the things that a photograph loses because it's just a moment of stillness that, you know, you could be in the middle of an argument and take a really lovely photo of a scene. And then that memory lives more in that kind of captured moment than in the reality of what that experience was like. And I'm really fascinated fascinated by that and this idea of curating memory, even if unintentionally, that that's sort of the result that we sort of externalized how we use our own memories, just based on the reliance on our devices to capture them. And just the way that that image that's captured doesn't grow or evolve. It's a fixed image. And even sometimes when I look back at my own photographs, I feel that like I am nostalgic for something that is even sometimes far from the reality of what that experience was because of the way that it's been captured. So I was really fascinated by that. And it sort of became like the portal into like really expanding on my writing. And from there, I also found that it became this like vehicle for exploring so many things I was interested in. But yeah, I think I was always sort of crafting these narratives inside my brain and, and I hadn't given myself permission to really explore them in a deep way before that. I mean, that's really interesting to hear that inherently there is so much awareness of how we kind of move through the digital space and how that affects our ability to tell stories. That's something that's central to my own sort of exploration with slow stories. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But just as you were speaking, I'm curious if, you know, as you were gathering research to write the book or just kind of mulling over these themes, if there was a story that you came across, whether it was an article, a poem or a book that made you slow down or impacted your relationship with memory and in turn impacted the book. I'm trying to think of something that was around when I was writing. You know, it was over the course of so many years that I think there were so many works of fiction that really sort of expanded my idea of how you could write memory. And that maybe is a different question. But one of the things that just came to mind was this exhibit, the Alice Neal exhibit at the Met that I went to recently. And I was struck by her, I think she calls them her human paintings. And they're, you know, the portraits of her neighbors and her loved ones and friends. And I was so, especially coming out of this time of such isolation and, you know, strictly digital connection over the past year and a half, 
I was so struck by just the sense that she is able to capture of someone's essence sort of in those moments, like in between talking where you're just sitting with someone and like soaking up that experience of being in someone's presence. And I think that that was a really important reminder for me of like what that feels like. Cause lately the friends that I've been seeing were so, you know, there's so much energy or we want to catch up. We've been sort of deprived of being with each other for so long now but I think I'm reminded now of like the sweetness of just sort of sitting in the stillness with someone that you love or care about, but also with someone as a way to sort of learn their ways. I think that's like one of the biggest insights into someone else. And the, one of the most overlooked ways of connection is just sort of being present with someone. And one of the things that triggered was like the idea that this is something that's important to do with yourself as well. And like allowing yourself that space to just sort of be, it's really powerful to take that space and time to just sort of be and her portraits I think just captured that sense of unhurried kind of existence in a way that I'm not sure I've ever seen in what's traditionally portraiture the other thing I thought of was Bo Burnham's Netflix special which I just watched recently called Inside and he has this song called Welcome to the Internet and it sort of creates the experience of like being bombarded with all the things that one encounters on the internet when you're like passively experiencing it and I found it such a a true portrayal of that and it made me think about how I consume the internet and I often find myself as he shows it in this song where you're just bombarded with everything and at like complete range of emotions and emotional impact, I think is something that's not necessarily healthy for our brains. <laughs> and I've been thinking about it a lot recently and just being a little bit more intentional with how I consume anything online, whether it's social media or the news, just you know, making sure that I'm choosing to enter into a place like that and not just feeling five minutes in a way that can have a real impact and something that he really shows on that is, is also like the way that the surface of our internet consumption can be very homogenous. And I find that the impact of being shown what to like and what to read and how to feel can often lead me to feeling really stuck creatively. And it's accessing the levels that are well underneath that kind of surface consumption that I cue into in social media that actually allows me to like come up with a new idea or engage on a deeper level that's getting to something beyond sort of more of that passive intake. It's interesting to kind of talk about that special. I just watched it too and afterwards just found myself completely horrified at, you know, the point we've arrived at. And it's also just, yeah, interesting to talk about that through the lens of memory because I've personally been thinking about how we're going to remember this time in terms of all the art that's coming out of this time. Just going back to the book, The Shimmering State tackles so much of these themes obviously removed from the pandemic but you know you deal with grief and trauma and pain in a really beautiful and thoughtful way and I particularly loved your sort of nuanced exploration of art and how it is this catalyst for memory and in a lot of ways for hope and at one point you write art is an act of hope whatever shape it takes the impulse to make the thing the faith that lets you listen to it to try and create something that might speak to those who you may never meet. That was all blind hope. I think it's such a poignant place to pause just as we talk about how we kind of hold on to hope during this time. And I'm curious 
as you kind of reflect on your memories, writing the book and using art as this grounding force to inform the story, if you have any thoughts on how the relationship between hope and art has changed. Yeah, I love that you chose that line. I remember writing that at a time when I was feeling so deeply that way about writing this book, like even just in writing as well, like the idea that you invest so much time in a novel. And so in some ways, it is this ultimate act of hope that anyone will read it. And it sort of can both fuel sort of an optimistic feeling as you're working, or it can also fuel this like very desperate creative impulse that sort of is taking a, a gamble in some ways. And I, I sort of went back and forth on my approach to that and just how long it can take to write a novel. But I did find that this book was such a place where I loved exploring the hope of art and of creativity and like the different ways that it manifests as well. And in Lucian, for example, he's a photographer and I think it's so interesting to think of his frustration because in some ways as a photographer, it relies on him looking at the world and like wanting to capture something. And so he's at a point of being so hopeless that like at one point, I think in the book I write, he's lost his ability to see even because he's so clouded with grief. For him as a character, I was really interested in exploring this young man who is sort of from this lineage of creativity. Like his mother in the book is a famous painter and his grandmother has her own creative history that I won't get into because I don't want to spoil anything. But I was so interested in like, what does it mean to have this kind of lineage of creating and creativity, especially across different mediums, because I think it's rare that it manifests in the same way. But I really wanted to explore that and like ways that it can inspire you and also the sort of pressure that that might create an expectation. And then with Sophie, I was really in the same way, I was so interested in like the nuances of her pursuit of ballet and like the restraint that that demands and the sort of perfection that that requires in practice but also the beautiful expression that it involves. So it's like the tension between those two things, which I find also is so true in writing. Like the more satisfied I become with what I end up with is usually the result of learning more restraint. And I think it's counterintuitive when you're first writing that showing restraint can actually lead to more impact and more you know, if you're writing a scene with a lot of tension, restraint is such a helpful tool to create that tension or to create that sort of explosive moment later because you play with the juxtaposition. So I find so many of these things are applicable to writing. And I, I just find it so much more interesting personally to explore them through different arts that I love. Often it's also more visual and more like tactile to talk about. And then finally, I think I mentioned this earlier, but Dr. Sloan, to me, is also a character who is like drawn to sort of having creativity and like how we approach memory, how we approach mental illness, and whether or not that's for good or for bad. I think her hope and, you know, if art is an act of hope, I think hers is is that she can have a positive impact there through science. And I, I do think that there is such a link between science and the arts that doesn't often get explored very much. So I also see her in some way as an artist who's trying to explore something different. And with Sophie as well, I wanted that to be part of her character that in a way that addresses even exploring mental illness in a different way by sort of externalizing what she goes through. But yeah, I do think that art is an act of hope and... I found it really difficult during this time. I was grateful that I was working on my revisions for most of this past year because I found it so hard to start new work when sort of our reality feels in flux and even what hope looks like feels a little bit or has felt a little bit in flux. 
I'm feeling more of a sense of stability around it now. But yeah, I think having that feel very intangible for me makes it really hard to start new projects. I was really grateful to have a place to explore those things during this time. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting just as you were talking about Dr. Sloan, you know, she wasn't just as a reader. I didn't expect to learn so much about her backstory and the sort of link between all of the themes and the other characters' respective experiences. Was her presence always part of the plan in terms of demonstrating the link between even science and art and just the power of memory? She was always a character in much earlier versions of the book. It was a much more like wide reaching book and there were more characters that didn't end up in this version. So she was always one of them, but there were, I guess, two or three other characters. So it was like a wider narrative that didn't have as much forward trajectory. And as I edited it, it became more and more clear that it was really a story about Lucian and Sophie sort of as the holders of a lot of of what I was interested in exploring. And Dr. Sloan was in the earlier versions, I didn't have the center in that kind of before and today setting. And so when that was added, I think it really clarified how Dr. Sloan fit in in some ways. I always wanted her to have like the best motivations that, you know, a person could in that situation. And I'm really interested in exploring like the hurt that can come even from someone with good intentions and the ripple effect of that and whether or not they even ever know the pain that they've caused or the implications of what they were trying to do. That for me is the most interesting part of her character and also just sort of humanizing her role in the center and with her own daughter as sort of a super successful in terms of her career and then sort of having this Achilles heel of her daughter where so much of that doesn't translate and the sort of tragedy of not being able to connect with your child because of your own ambition and like hurt from the past that we later see but even her ambition kind of the places that she thinks she can work harder and do better often is to her own detriment I think and I was really interested in exploring that kind of character in those sections you could just feel that overlap between hope ambition and pain and how it was hard to kind of distinguish what was motivating her but I never saw her as a villain just someone who had the blinders on and just so hopeful or focused on her vision which I think kind of plays into a lot of the themes you were exploring in terms of dreaming and the creative life and just doing whatever it takes to make those dreams a reality. And there's so much I want to talk about too, but I think on the subject of some of the more delicate themes around addiction and trauma, I'm curious if there were any considerations you had to make to tell a story through those lenses in a way that was both responsible and engaging. Yeah, that's a great question. I never wanted the drug to be something that was really like cool. You know, I didn't, I had a lot of hesitation around different feedback that I would get or even impressions early on. Because for me, the drug has always been a tool to examine, you know, why different characters are drawn to it, like what that highlights in what they're searching for or their own pain or trauma. And then the characters who are using it, you know, recreationally and who by their account would probably be the ones who think it's very cool. (laughs) I wanted it to be clear that that 
was very dangerous and having a real effect on their ability to kind of exist as a cohesive person with a cohesive sense of self. Because I think in some ways it's along the way, anytime I would get pushback, like asking for more of how the drug works or, or more of sort of the experience of being on the drug, I always wanted to make it something that felt tied to character and tied to like the parts that interested me, which was often like the discrepancy between the memory and the person taking it. I mean, it's part of the allure of the drug has to be that it draws people to take it. And so the way that, for example, Ray Delaney talks about it is, you know, can be a thrill and it's escaping your own perspective and seeing the world as someone else. And of course, a lot of those memories that would be in what makes onto the black market would be sort of those kinds of experiences. But I wasn't really interested in exploring that as like a fantasy in any way. And even one character, when Sophie later in the book finds her own fix to try to help herself, there's one memory that's sort of somewhat like pornographic that someone would clearly be searching for. And even that one, I wanted to show like the mundanity and in, in actually having the person's perspective in a moment <laughs> that sort of any kind of like voyeuristic or thrill seeking impulse is always sort of tethered to like the person living it. And that's one way that it definitely differs from something like social media, because we get only the filter on social media. And so at some point, the idea of how this drug worked became very different and almost like something that I'm fascinated by. And just in terms of the perspective of someone else that we can never understand. And, you know, you can experience the most wonderful moment with someone, and yet you'll never really know how they experience the same moment with you. And I think it's something really interesting about the human experience that like, there's a line that we can never cross in terms of how close we can be with one another. And I think it's a line that we shouldn't cross. And so that that's what interests me about the pill is it's like Pandora's box almost and and various characters experience that in the book. But, you know, no matter whose pill it is, I think we don't want to really see that because our consciousness is really built on like a singular sense of, of reality and of oneself, too, that is just too complicated when you introduce another's. For sure. And I was just thinking about how sort of parallel to how we experience social media and that sense of curation that you mentioned earlier about memory and perspective. For me, the drug sort of like a tether to this idea that some things are just for us, reestablishing that sense of boundary that I think gets lost in our digital age. And sort of the next part of this conversation will address that in detail. But I think it would be great to have you read from the book and kind of give a voice to the characters that you've been talking about. Great. He just needs something, anything, to send Natasha, even if it's only the start of something new. He pushes both hands into his hair, letting his elbows fan out. Lucian isn't a painter. In the series featuring his mother, he used paint because all his photographs of her felt wrong. Photography was his way of processing, of seeing. Everything he shot of her then felt incomplete, and only something added could have changed that. In a way, the paint was an homage to her. But now Lucian's whole world is off, and nothing, no amount of paint, can fix it. He throws a sheet over the canvas and turns it gently to the wall. He collapses onto the mattress, staring out the window at the many shapes and shadows of leaves so foreign to him that they should be intriguing. His new normal. It's only a matter of time before he hears from Natasha, his art dealer, again. Before she learns that he has nothing. Nothing to say, nothing to show. And maybe he never did. Was it Bernini who said he didn't carve into marble, 
but rather revealed something already inside? Or was that Michelangelo? Lucian always preferred Bernini. Perhaps that's why his memory ascribes it to him. No, certainly it was Michelangelo. His pieces so often look only just released from the stone, with remnants still at the base or around the edges. Bernini's sculptures look as if they had never been stone at all. This idea of trying to uncover what was already there versus pulling something from yourself has always been inspiring or reassuring to Lucian. It takes the pressure off the artist. They are only revealing something. And isn't that what photography is? Revealing something already there for everyone else to see, capturing it permanently, showing how one sees in a moment, an angle, a look, and freeing everyone else to do the same. I adore that passage so much. And, you know, despite it obviously being fiction, it rings so true to, I think, the artist's experience and just the day-to-day of honing in your creativity. And with that in mind, what do you think fiction can bring to our reading or writing experiences that no other genre creates the same amount of room to explore? And as a follow-up to that, in what ways has it proven to be slow? I absolutely think that fiction is key for my writing process, but also just for my own well-being. I find it so helpful to disappear into a book. And I think what fiction can do is allow you to leave yourself, obviously, but also to sort of internalize what it is like to be others that you may have very little in common with. And some of my favorite books have narrators that are incredibly unlikable or sort of act counter to how I would like them to. And often I think that's the most interesting kind of fiction, you know, especially fiction that makes you think as someone who's unlike yourself in any given way. And to show the depths of that perspective in a way that isn't accessible from the exterior. And I think that has the power to change sort of how you see the world. I mean, it's sort of like the core to empathy in a way. And when I'm really in like a deep writing phase, I find that I have a hard time not sort of putting myself in like almost everyone I encounter. And it's something that I actually kind of cherish, like experiences getting coffee and exchanges beyond, you know, for my friends and family. But I find like the experience of being a writer can often be like empathy overload just because you can see any given situation from every perspective. And that's a really helpful exercise for everyone. And reading fiction, it automatically puts you there. I know before we started recording, we were talking about pacing, and that's another central exploration with slow stories. So if you want to also tell me a little bit about your relationship with pace in terms of how you think about writing fiction and also how it's sort of changed as a result of having to create art and tell stories in our digital age. Yeah, I definitely think that reading fiction is a good counter to the pace that we're all living in in the digital age because you can only, if you're sitting with a book, you can only read so fast. And even if you devour a book in a day or two days, that's still this amazing amount of separation from the normal pace of our daily life that I find even if I read for 20 minutes, I completely lose track of myself and the sort of daily things that sort of complicate my mind in a way that's different from anything else. I would almost compare it to like running or even to painting. But I find that there's something really specific about reading that if I'm feeling stuck with writing as well, often if I read just if I start the day just reading a couple pages, I can immediately go back to working on my own writing because it just 
sort of clicks something like a deeper level of consideration. It sort of activates that in a way that for me, nothing else can. And so in that way, I think it's one of the ultimate acts of slowness. And the process of writing this book was in many ways like a sort of practice of slowness and patience. By the end of writing this book, which I started in 2013, give or take a couple of months here or there, I really worked on without putting it aside for that amount of time. So seven years or something with pauses when it was on submission and all of that. But I'm, I think by nature, very impatient. And so there were so many times where I quote and unquote finished just by nature of like gotten to the end or wanting to be finished. And so I think looking at writing and especially at the process of writing a novel as like an exercise in slowness, I think brings me back to like authentically looking at what my practice looks like and not what I want it to look like, which is that so much of my writing is through revision. And so it really thrives on patience and not jumping to submit something as soon as I've finished it because I want to be done or because it's taking a certain amount of time. And so I found like the final revision that I did before we sold it, which was for about a year or a year and a half when I completely rewrote the book and I changed the structure and even something as simple as moving it from past tense to present tense meant that I really rewrote almost every page. Um, And at that point we had submitted it and no one had bought it. So I felt sort of like my fear for all these years had been realized that it maybe wasn't going to get published. And I took a couple months break. And then when I went back to it, I really found that I actually sort of enjoyed the process of writing it again. And I think it was because I had accepted like that fear I had, and it was almost over. And now I got to just write it how I wanted to and consider all these things with a different intentionality that I hadn't even given myself the time or space to do before. And it goes back to having studied literature. And like, I loved examining works in that way and how the structure was important to the themes and and how all those things work and giving the author like a you know intentionality behind those choices and I think in some ways I hadn't given myself the pacing to like take the time to rethink those things or examine my choices in a way that was really important to finding the structure and the tone in some ways that the book I think always needed to be but I had just kind of been moving along in hopes that I would finish in some ways and getting comfortable with the pacing of writing a novel finally let me enjoy what it's all about which is the writing and the time living in that space and I think the fact that it did take as long as it did allowed so many different things to find their way into the book like different themes or things that I was interested in over the course of the those years. And, you know, especially, for example, once Trump was elected, and then the Me Too movement, and then I was living in LA during the first of these past several years of like the worst wildfires that continuously have been getting worse. And all of those things just affected me so deeply and found their way into this book in a way that feels very important to what it became. So in some ways, I'm very grateful. I didn't finish it sooner in in the way that I had thought that I and hoped that I had because it allowed it to really become, I think, what it needed to. So I think for my next book, I would hope that it wouldn't take seven years or something like that. But I do think accepting from the beginning the pace of a novel is liberating if it lets you sort of savor the time and treat it almost like a meditative state as you're in it instead of imagining the finish line. 
past guests on this podcast have mentioned that typically the novel writing process does take around seven to 10 years, but I'm sure there's a lot you'll take with you into the next book. And hearing you kind of list out all of the things that we've collectively witnessed or endured from Trump to natural disasters and everything in between, especially within the last 12 to 18 months, it's amazing that anything gets done, let alone <laughs> time for creative exploration and for all of the distractions and the negative sort of discourse that the digital age brings. I'm curious, as you think about the process overall, was there anything that was uniquely rewarding about writing during this time? Well, I guess I found over the past like year was really when I started working on my revisions with my editor. And so in a lot of ways, it felt like at the time, such a hard time to be focusing on anything besides what's happening right now. And yet at the same time, it was this really helpful place to, first of all, to just kind of disappear to when I was in the throes of a revision and could finally get there. <laughs> Once I kind of got into it, I found it like a really helpful escape. But I also found it a place to channel some of what I was feeling in ways that really related to the book. It worked well, given the content of the book. I can imagine certain things that would have felt impossible to write carefree romance or something during that or revise that during this time. But I found Sophie, for example, in the book at a certain point when she's at the center is like longing for touch because she's so isolated and the center is so sterile that she just is sort of like her skin is craving contact with people, even just like a casual brush of someone against her skin. And I felt that way during quarantine, like just longing to be surrounded by people because it's just something I never would have thought I would feel, but just that sense of isolation and sort of realizing what you take for granted, what you lose in that kind of a scenario. And so for me, there's so much of that that ended up finding its way into the book, even as I was revising, just based on the circumstances. And also for Lucian, who's grieving the loss of his mother, one of the hardest things for me this past year was that I lost my dog who I had had as like my partner for writing this whole book and for 12 years, even just finding a place to be engaged with that kind of grief and longing and then explore what it would be like to revisit her again. I mean, in some ways it was hard, but in some ways it was like the only thing I could have been working on because it felt so true to what I was feeling. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like those things added again to sort of refining some of those themes in the book. But I always struggle with the desire to connect given the digital age and then the need that I feel when I'm writing to disconnect. And I found now that one of the things that's been really nice is just how many authors I've connected with through online platforms like Instagram, forums that some people have set up for writers that are coming out with books during this time. And the way that that feels like this really special connection that I hadn't had before. And a lot of these writers are across the country or even across the world. And so that feels like this really incredible gift to have that sort of was created because everything has been so limited. And yet it was something that I probably wouldn't have felt, you know, in the time before the pandemic. So I do think that some of the ways that we adapt can lead to stronger connections. But in some ways, I think it's about that balance of not losing the earlier in-person contact as you continue to forge these connections, whether online or offline, is there a question that you hope people start asking you more often in the context of 
creativity, life, memory? Yeah, I think one thing that I've noticed coming out of this time is just how insufficient the question, how are you, feels now when I've seeing people for the first time or even people that I'm seeing more regularly now because it still feels like there's so much that we're all still sort of struggling with. And I've been noticing just how it sort of flattens the feeling of connection to be asked that or to ask that too. I still do it out of habit. And so I would love for there to be, this isn't specific to me, but for us to have a different question that doesn't ask someone who might be having a really difficult time to like betray themselves or how they're feeling by saying, oh, good, how are you? And that that in turn, you know, if you're struggling and someone says, I'm great, you also feel sort of isolated. So I would love for that question to be more like, what's exciting you now? What have you been learning? Because I think it's something that immediately opens up opportunity for connection. You know, all those questions could easily snowball into so many other questions and an entirely separate conversation. I think for the purposes of this interview, I've just loved having you share so much about this incredible book. And for our readers who haven't had a chance to dive in yet, would you be open to reading one final passage to leave them with? Yes, absolutely. This passage is towards the end of the book when Sophie has been at the center and she has been overhearing conversation from a new patient who she doesn't really know anything about. And one of those lines finds its way into this passage. So I just wanted to give that before I jump in. It will be sort of interrupted by fragment. She had gotten distracted. Love is not everything. It is something, but not in her control. Love cannot live inside this place. Sophie needs to leave, and for her to leave, she needs to focus. She needs to believe that maybe the next treatment will work, and if not that one, the one after, and the one after that, until finally, finally, she is free. I only saw his feet, sneakers, those clumsy feet that took my whole life from me, even as I held it hot. After days of disconnected phrases, Sophie starts to find a linear pattern in the new patient's words. Her mind, desperate for a task, pieces together what happened by remembering and ordering those phrases in a sort of catalog. Sophie, who had written down every order at Chateau, lest she mix up every table. Amazing, she thinks, what the mind is capable of when deprived of stimuli. Sophie first noticed her because almost all the patients at the center are male. Either women are too smart to binge on other people's lives, with too much to worry about in their own heads already, or plenty of women are using too. They're just better at suffering in silence, hiding their pain at any cost. Sophie had sooner thrown herself off a ledge than ask for help. At least that's what she's been told, of course. She can't remember a thing from the weeks leading up to her admission, but the scratches match the story. By the time she realizes the sum of this new patient's pain, Sophie believes the human capacity for loss is boundless. Just when you think you're at the edge, you learn that it moves. That was Meredith Westgate, author of The Shimmering State. 
you can order The Shimmering State anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Meredith on social at Meredith Westgate. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.